You have no idea what's coming. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. I need your help. After this, we are less than even. There's no escape for you. The high table wants your life. An ambitious thriller that took the filmmakers to locations in New York and Morocco, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, sees the return of Keanu Reeves as super assassin John Wick and also stars Halle Berry, Ian McShane, and Lawrence Fishburne. Chad Sahelski returns as the film's director, and Dan Lauston, who lends Chapter 2 of the franchise, is back as this film's cinematographer. Today, Chad and Dan share a behind-the-scenes look at the making of this movie. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to Behind the Screen. An accomplished martial artist, Chad Sahelski, started his career as a stuntman and stunt coordinator. In fact, he met Keanu Reeves when he was a stunt double on The Matrix. He co-directed John Wick and was the sole director of Chapters 2 and 3. Danish cinematographer Dan Lauston is the Oscar-nominated director of photography on Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Lauston also lends del Toro's Mimic and Crimson Peak, and he's set to reteam with the director on Nightmare Alley. He first worked with Chad on John Wick 2 and returned for Chapter 3. Chad and Dan, thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us. Chad, let's start. The action is such a huge part of this movie. Tell us about the training and preparations at your stunt company. Uh, With my partner, Dave Leach, who's also another director that's done Hobbs and Shaw, Deadpool 2, and Atomic Blonde, and co-directed the first John Wick with me. We own a company called 8711. It's a facility in Los Angeles that helps train stuntmen, martial arts stunt performers, and cast. It's where a lot of people come to learn. I don't know if most of your listeners know, but like they they don't teach martial art choreography (laughs) in mini malls and on street corners. Before Matrix had come out, uh, martial arts and films was considered just its own genre, martial art action. It wasn't even mainstream action at the time. If you remember like True Lies and, you know, some of the Westerns and some of the stuff that was going on at the time, martial arts were considered, not in a bad way, but a kind of lowbrow B-movie kind of thing. And then Matrix pops and then like, oh, wow. Big budget studio films, tenfold films, wanted martial art fight scenes. The version of martial art kicking and all that kind of stuff was almost looked down upon by Western filmmakers and audiences as, well, we, we want the big muscle one punch stuts the guy down. And then Matrix goes, and oh, it's cool to do wire work and flashy kicks and flips, and now it's fun, it's fantasy land, it opened the door to, you know, all the Matrix influence films and superhero movies. And there weren't many stunt teams poised for that. But after spending so long with Yu and Wu Ping and having the background me and my little clique of friends and fellow stunt performers had, we became, fortunate for us, kind of in demand as people to choreograph the films. And we honestly didn't really know what we were doing. We just were in the right spot at the right time. And Dave and I decided, wow, this is a real thing. We should just start a company and start teaching people how to do it. I also had a fairly, I wouldn't say advanced, but I had a fairly good knowledge of live performances, of how real dance theaters do it. Again, to get a little history on it, 
what we do in movies, the martial art, when you see a martial art fight, you know, martial arts sequence, when I say it's not real martial arts, the moves look like they come from a martial art discipline, karate, aikido, jiu-jitsu, something like that. But the way we train is very different. Competitive martial arts, combative martial arts deal with off-balancing and the obstruction of your opponent. In choreography, it's exactly, I mean, exactly like dance. You have to make room, you have to compensate. Our job as martial art performers are to make the other person look great. So it's much more in effect learning to dance and learning how to cooperate with your partner and with the illusion of violence and the illusion of you're messing the guy up. And that wasn't a big thing, that was a foreign idea to most stuntmen at the time. So Dave and I started this company and we started to retrain all these professional martial art guys, not about hitting, punching, hurting, but how to literally dance with the moves that we stole a lot of ideas from you know both dance choreography you know bob fossey era kind of stuff phenomenal choreographer and director in his own world and all that jazz cabaret i'm sure most people know who bob fossey is we took a lot of that we stole a lot of what how professional dancers go because a big thing in choreography is memory you have to know the 50 moves to do the 50 moves and how to perform and that was a lost art in hollywood at the time because of shaky cam and fast editing and all like you two moves and oh you're done and you kind of go so we kind of started like that and then we took that whole process when i got the opportunity to direct that process only works if you can control the prep meaning most movies give you four yeah. to six weeks okay. to prep and it's mostly just the stunt team and maybe the director pops in once we go, yeah, I like that, I don't like that. There's very little collusion between the two. And normal Hollywood prep stuff, you know, maybe the stunt choir is brought in 10 weeks out to kind of talk about it. And then the stunt teams are brought out six weeks out and you get the actor four to six weeks. The cinematographer's coming out, but he's doing his thing. So he pops maybe in once or twice to a stunt rehearsal. Yeah, sure. The cameramen never come to a stunt rehearsals in the beginning. We only get them maybe a week out so they can do a quick camera check on the truck. The editor, probably not even hired yet. So that's why you get so many, I guess, less exciting or less technically advanced fight scenes or action sequences in movies. No one's putting any time into it. And then they get there, so now you show up on a set that really none of the stuntmen other than the people involved have seen it. The cameramen are showing up maybe for the first or second time, and that's the first day they're seeing the fight scene. The cinematographer hasn't talked enough to the director because the director has to make the decisions to go, okay, Dan, we're going to shoot really, really wide, and then have the cinematographer look at you like, you are, huh? Well, where am I going to put my lights? So all these things are going against what your vision is to get it. So we just reverse engineer and go out like, why are so many fight scenes messed up? And we're like, okay, well, we're going to shoot wide, but every one of my department heads has come to rehearsal and seen the fights. Dan is helping me design fights. My production director, Kevin Cavanaugh, is understanding what we're trying to do. My camera team we brought in, especially with the dog sequence in this one, they came in so the dogs would be acclimated. Our great handheld operator, Oliver, was in there getting it so he knew the choreography. Like most cameramen aren't professional martial art stunt performers. And Dan will tell you, it's never, decision making is always the killer on most film sets. And it usually rests with, you know, the guy in my seat. The quicker I make a decision, the more time I have. Now that doesn't mean I can't change and be organic, but I, you definitely gotta go, guess what? We're having dogs in this movie, this is what we're doing, this is the way we're gonna do it. I decided that a year out, because that's how long the trainers told me I need to get the dogs. That's before I cast, that's before I had his location, that's before we even knew a country we're shooting in, exactly. and that's before we even had a script. You know, so just if you understand that process, you get why action is sometimes weak in films. Yeah, because you have those ideas. You want to have a horse chase, you want to have some yeah. dogs, and then you, you try start. to make a story around yeah. it. And that's maybe a little backwards for most directors. Yeah. But yes, we designed sequences, and we knew the palette. Three was obviously easier than two, because like between Dan, Kevin, and I, the, the holy trinity of the, the mise-en-scene of the movie is... 
designing a world and then reverse engineering out what do we need to pull this off. Right. Well, let's, great let's locations, talk about that. great lighting, all that kind of stuff. Dan, how would you describe the overall approach that you started with on two, as far as the look goes? And when I met Chad on number two, you know, asked me to come to New York. I flew to New York, met him. I saw him the first one on the plane over because I have never seen John Wick before. And he couldn't turn around. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was no turn, no return. So, and Chad said to me, I think you have just seen the trailer from Crimson Peak, the yeah. one I did with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, exactly. And he wants to do a very colorful movie. And of course, I was very pleased about that. And I remember Chad said, I want to do a Italian Bachelucci movie with a lot of action in and I was like, this is amazing. Of course, everybody wants to do that. And you had to hook them. <laughs> yeah, and you hooked me big time there. You know, we want to be prepared to shoot as wide as we can and be lit for that. Because when Keanu and everybody else is coming up in speed, you know, you want to keep the momentum. You cannot spend hours to change the lighting. Uh, so we just, the way we are designing the look is so we can shoot fast. And we would like this single source lighting, you know, very colorful. And of course, that was number two. And we try to make that even further in number three. More extreme on the color and everything. Yeah. The fact that, you know, most productions would get five to ten setups with the sequences we do. And Dan's going to hate me for this, but we literally get anywhere from 30 to 50 yeah, in a true. sequence, depending on where we are. And that's like true second unit action shooting. And it never, of course, there's a price for that, which is usually the look you know, the time spent on the lighting. But to be able to layer the lighting, and again, you'll never see a shoot into the wall like this. When I saw the trailer for Crimson Peak, there was that one shot of looking down that long, creepy yeah. hall. Oh yeah, for sure. And there was like, I literally all the way down to like the bathroom. And yeah. there was literally like eight colors in that. And it was all surrounded by black. Like black had been the outline of it. I was like, that's the movie. I want to do that in New York City streets. So how do I get that? But that also makes me feel like, oh my God, we got to light like three blocks. That's like nine condors. It's like, <laughs> and then Dan's the one that figures it all out. And, you know, you can talk about how we got the, I call them the magic tubes. I think it's important that John Wick and everyone, all the movie, you know, we want to be as prepared because when you're shooting in New York City, you have to have a lighting design. You have to share a picker there and a condor there and a rain tower there. And you cannot change that because there are so many rules in New York about the cities, you cannot move them around. So that's one thing. But then we have to be prepared to do some, if we don't like what we are seeing, we have to do that right away. So we have that scene where we are shooting outside the library. So we came up there and everything was prepared, you know, the pre-raking crew and all the cranes was there. And Chad and me was looking, so I said, this is so boring, you know, we have to do some crazy stuff. What can we do? I mean, it's a New York Public Library, cool structure, but it just looked like another entrance to another building. Yeah. And it wasn't us. And then I said to my gaffer, Bill, you know, uh, how many (laughs) tubes do we have in the truck? And we have 45 in one truck and 45 in another truck. And he said, why are we not putting on the stairs, you know? I'm sure if you uh, film person you can see it's a film light but nobody would go to see that and it's giving a lot of energy into the picture i think it's yeah it's uh, world creation and that's what we want to do so change the rules of action change the rules of lighting you know tell us about shooting in grand central such an iconic location dan's great at depth and i love architecture so the two go together really well when we shot number two and three we shot with airy camera and we shot with master anamorphic and we want to have flair you know, lens flare, but we, those lenses are so good, so we couldn't do that. And because <laughs> you guys have a lot of lens flares for number one. Yeah. And we want to change the look a little bit from number two and three comparing to number one. So we was ASC, that's a rental company in New York, was making those fishing lines inside the camera. So we put a fishing line inside the camera and that works pretty well. And when we was 
prepping number two, you talked a lot about mm. Grand Central Station. Yeah. Or Grand I always Central wanted, just couldn't get in on number two. We hit up that weird thing. We we're going into Christmas, yeah, and it was just booked. And I was like, we could get it for like four hours. And like that just wasn't going to happen. So on number three, it was like, okay, Revenge of Grand Central. We had to literally shift a month of scheduling around to get the three days it was available. And it's available, absolutely. You can move in at 10 o'clock and you shoot from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. By 5.15, you have to be out of that floor because they're opening up that station and nothing is going to stop them. And, you know, for our day costs, I still have to have the crew come in. So I'm still paying the same for a day. It's just I'm getting half the work done. You have to be ready to take that hit and you have to block and shot list out your scenes very carefully. And for the same price as two full days, I got three borderline half days at Grand Central. I yeah. think it was six hours of shoot time for three days. And we had all these sequences to do. And we're like, okay, well, let's go back to the drawing. We're going to rewrite that and it's going to be zero. And Ken's going to walk up. We're going to get no fight scene. We're going to go out the back door. It yeah. was literally that fast. But I think it's worth it for the world building experience of the set. What I think we was very agree about, we want to light the set. We want to be able to light, to have to have this John Wick look. We didn't want to get into Grand Central Terminal where it just looked flat. There was three 24Ks and some condos, so we have to close restaurants down and empty them and put man lift stops and with lights on and steel blue, that's our favorite night color, and have a big balloon coming in with a lot of cable and stuff like that. So there was a lot of practical stuff there. And I think that pays off so well because it's a really John Wick look in Grand Central Terminal, and that's you don't want to go into shoot on a cool location if it doesn't look right. Now, another question I have to ask about the logistics of shooting in New York. What was involved in getting a horse to run through Brooklyn? <laughs> about five years off Dan and my life. <laughs> First of all, you have to put yoga, oh my God. rubber mats down on all the streets. Like You're running like five or six or seven hundred feet of yoga mats because the horse cannot run on asphalt. And first time I heard that thing, this is too crazy. They're, they're special <laughs> horse mats that are used for equestrian events and stuff. They're really thick. They look like yoga mats, but each yeah. mat, which is like a six by eight, weighs about 220 pounds. So you can only move around with forklifts. It's not like a guy can just pick them up. They're super heavy so it doesn't slip with the horse. Well, they've been digitally removed from the film so you don't see them on the ground, but every time you see a horse running on pavement, these mats have been laid. It takes two to three hours to lay them and lock them and make sure to test them the horse doesn't slip. On top of that, those motorcycles, you see those sounds been put in. You can't ride a real motorcycle next to a horse. It freaks out the horse. So those are electric motorcycles we had to figure out. You know, you can't crash a motorcycle next to a horse. You want to freak that out. If any animal, for that matter, doesn't know it's a movie, there's no such thing as a movie horse. There's just animals that have been trained in an environment that has movie-like stuff in it. If a horse has been training and rehearsing in a stable on dirt, it's a far different experience to have technocranes and a shot maker and camera bikes and 500 extras and motorcycles next to it shooting guns and Keanu Reeves hanging off the side. That horse, not just the cast and crew has to be trained. That started four and a half, five months out just to get the horse acclimated to go underneath an elevated train. And even when we got there, in fairness to safety for the crew, the animal, you know, we have the Humane Society there, you have all this stuff, you're being hyper vigilant. You know, you're not doing anything the animal doesn't want to do. You know, we're all animal lovers and stuff. We don't do that. But, like, you know, we're there. We had rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed on the elevated train. It was good. The horse was great. You know, we literally have five months, and I can't even tell you the gazillion dollars we've put into this. And the sequence was supposed to be twice as long as it is in the film. And first night, first rehearsal, a train goes overhead. The lead horse, for whatever reason, had been absolutely fine for two weeks. Wigs out. Train goes by, horse goes, I ain't having it. Rah! And does a little horse thing. And we're just like, 
once you see that, you can't just calm the horse down. Go, okay, it's going to be fine. And you make the horse do something. Psychologically, that's bad. And that's not what anybody wants to do is to force an animal to do something. So now we look at the train schedule that's above us, which we were originally anticipating not to affect us. Now it's affecting us because we've chosen the cool location because Dan and I wanted the overhead and to be able to light it. And now you're looking at it like, so you kidding me. So every 20 minutes a train comes and it takes an hour to set up. So every time a train is about to come, we have spotters all the way down the rail. So when it's about a mile out, people have to dismount horse. That's going safe thing. Come back. So we went from a two minute chase sequence to a 45 second chase sequence at five stunts down this all this stuff done we were supposed to be getting a minimal of 10 setups a day to make the sequence happen we got one the first day that was kind of good and we got two the next day and then the third day we picked up our mind but like you just don't know so to answer your question anything with animals is you know think of your puppy at home you'll throw the stick he'll bring it back you'll throw the stick he'll bring it back that third time he'll look at you like what i already got it twice you know, you go get it, and they're done. There's nothing you can say to your puppy to go get that stick. Imagine that with a horse. He's like, run, motorcycles, crack, gun. He's like, nah, dude, I did this twice. So now you only have a limited number of takes on top of all the other crazy logistics I just mentioned. And they have to look fantastic at the same time. So lighting, you know. Light, that's what I mean. Lighting, stunts, lighting. camera. You can't miss. It's not like with just a stunt that, like, okay, there's a logistical thing. The animal simply will not do the shot. So, like, you got to hit it. Yeah, you want to see a cinematographer and a director freak a little bit? Yeah, that's a good place to watch us just go, uh-huh, stay calm, don't yell, stay calm. It's Murphy's Law. No matter how much money you spend, how much, there's always something's going to happen, especially when you're dealing with New York City horses, you know, production of 400 people, and you're trying to push the envelope a little bit, you know, and you got to roll with it, because if it gets but to But it looks it really cool in the movie, so, you know, in the end, it went out pretty well. Yeah, no, we're honestly shocked. It looks yeah. great. We're like, well, <laughs> whoo. Dodge that bullet. There's a dazzling action sequence in the glass house. And as I understand it, that was built on a stage. And you basically built the lighting into the design with production designer Kevin Cavanaugh. Would you tell us about that? I love architecture. A lot of the vision boards or the lookbooks I build are based on architecture or location. Doing a cool fight scene in an alley is okay. Doing a okay fight scene in a brilliant location somehow adds to it. So if you can do a great fight scene in a great location, you're great. Dan and I spent a lot of time on number two. I always had this fetish with reflections. So in number two, it was every time we had water, we had a puddle, yeah. Dan would find a way to incorporate. We'd put a mirror or a piece of glass when Keanu's sitting with the dog and we'll pan off. We tried to lead into any of the more emotional scenes with reflections. And we want to show the duality between, like, it's our own little, okay, we'll, we'll pump a thematic into this action movie. Obviously culminating in not just a tribute to Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, but it was like, Dan and I were fascinated, hey, can we pull this off? I threw out the idea to a mirror room with him. He's like, yeah, you know, most cinematographers would go, you know, let's not do all mirrors. And Dan's like, let's do more mirrors. So yeah. we had a lot of fun with that. So like, on number three, I had this idea. I wanted to get these guys that were like ninjas and we wanted John Wick to have this final battle, but... I didn't want it to be walled. Again, Dan's always reminding me about depth, 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 depth. So if we designed any kind of set with walls, that doing a fight scene in just a room bores the crap out of me. But doing a fight scene in the room that you can see through into the next room and through the floor and through the ceiling, and I get my reflections, and not only do I get reflections, I get refraction. So now, you know, any good musician knows how to use glass in a certain way so you can see through at a certain angle, but it becomes obtrusive at another angle. And we thought that was fascinating. So I pitched the idea to the powers that be and... It was not received that well. It was like, you know, uh, wow, this is amazing, but very complicated. Super complicated, super rehearsals. 
When you're building a three-story structure made entirely out of glass, it's a special kind of glass. It's incredibly expensive glass. And then when you say, well, I want to break half the glass, that becomes a lot of cost and logistics that seem daunting. But the trinity of evil, I think, the production designer, your cinematographer, me, thought that was a challenge. Like, let's give it a go and see what we do. And Kevin Cavanaugh, to his credit, just uh, with his team, pulled off an ideal set, I thought, for what Dan and I wanted to do for the price that other people wanted to do. So somehow we made it all work. But then it became the same thing that we experienced slightly with the mirror room. How do you light something where a light would literally be in every shot? And it seems easy to erase the light, but then you'll have reflections, refractions, and it just became cost inefficient at that point. It would be massive. So Dan came up with the idea to actually lay our LED strips and we with just Kevin have, in. We want to have this high scale, you know, high performance design of, as Chad is talking about, you know, glass, glass, glass. So we was building LED lights into all the floor pieces. And that's a three strip of LED lights at all, like six feet in the floor and six or 10 feet in the columns. And we could control all that from a dimmer ball. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I didn't know that at first. Dan put the light, oh, this is great. But then I was like, we have to do 15 minutes in here. And I thought that would be boring. And Dan just took his iPad and went, watch this. And he'd start changing colors. <laughs> I was like, awesome. I'm going to write that in the script. Hold on. We'll have Zero hold up the thing and it'll change colors. So I thought that was pretty genius. Yeah. And again, it's coming back to, you know, we want to shoot white. So we want to be able to see the whole room so we cannot have light anywhere. And again, to keep the momentum for the action. So we just built the LED lights into the set. The design of the set and the lighting setup is working so well together because it's just going to be like a really, really glass place. Yeah, I think for the scene with Ian McShane and Ken, I think it was Dan that came up with the big video screen, something we had played with a little bit in the mirror room in the second movie. And Dan's like, well, let's just put a really big screen right here. I thought it was just going to be like a little logo of this building. And Dan's like, well, let's just make it a whole screen and we'll let the whole set with it. And I think Kevin came up with the idea, well, let's, on this back end, because the light won't read, let's put a billboard up on the outside and we'll play some commercial the whole time and get it like that. So now we had basically three big sources of light. And we do like loose head on the tools of choice. And we say handheld. Handheld, nowadays, it's meant shaky cam. You can be incredibly solid. You can be incredibly composed with handheld. It's just to give us more range of really unhinging and tilting than, you know, overall adding kinetic energy. If your fight scene or your sequence or your scene doesn't have the energy due to the performance, getting the camera to do it for you, I would consider that kind of a cheat. The exception being when Paul Greengrass did The Second Born. I don't think that's what most people think is shaking him. He did it to infuse anxiety and pressure into the character in the scenes. And I thought that was genius. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the way he did that and the sequential borns afterwards. I think a lot of others have taken it since then and used it to hide things. We still love handheld. We just love composition. Now, what tool you use to get that composition fair game, yeah. you know? So in addition to New York, you also shot in Morocco. What were the challenges of shooting in a desert? It was more or less everything, wasn't it? Yeah, oh my God. Uh, anytime you go... I would just want to say something about New York before we go into Morocco. Because I think when we talked about doing number three... Chad said, we have to do something that's going to be amazing. We have to put something more into the movie. And then Chad came up with this idea about rain. So we was like, everything has to be night in New York, and everything has to be rain. And I think rain is, of course, is a fantastic because it's the third element into the picture. Kurosawa. Kurosawa, you know. But it was just, of course, a big challenge to rain every set in New York. New York Public Library. You got it. Right. 
change of plan. The Continental. Can you see that he's received by the concierge? Yes, sir, Mr. Wayne. Good dog. So when we have done that for like some months in New York and everybody's thinking about, oh, let's go to Morocco, it's going to be nice and dry. So the first couple of days we start shooting in Morocco, it starts to rain. All right, let me preface that by saying <laughs> the reason Morocco, I, I love the Arabic culture. I wanted something different. I want something ancient. We had done some other nationalities or, or nationalism things in the set pieces and we had a, a heavy Asian vibe already going on. So we thought Arabic would be great. We did European last one, let's do Arabic this one. And we scattered a bunch of different countries and because of the infrastructure of the country, we thought Morocco might be good. But the timing was a little off because where we wanted to shoot in the desert and how we wanted to use animals there, that's where we did the dog sequence. The higher the temperature, obviously it's, you know, animals don't like heat anymore we do. So it's 100 degrees, dogs don't get out of their cage. They don't want to work. So we had to wait till the temperature cooled, so we had to take a hiatus. And we kept asking, like, look, we have no rain cover here. We're going to shoot. It's all exteriors. It's all going to be there. We want this crisp, clear night. We want a juxtaposition to what we're doing in New York City, which is bright, sunshine, gold, all this stuff, great. And we're like, okay, and like, this is the time, this is, well, just give me the month with the least amount of rain ever. And like, this is the month. All right, we're gonna push, we're gonna set, we're gonna wait, we're gonna get there. And I shit you not, Dan's absolutely right. We got there, it rained for three weeks straight, and everybody's telling us, like, this never happens, it never happens. I'm like, well, it's and nobody had rain gear with us. Nobody, nobody, nobody has rain gear. Not even the locals had rain gear. Like, you hold newspapers over your head going, are you kidding me? Like, where are we going to find a rain bag? Like, you know, it was like being underwater for three weeks. And we're like, all right. So everything was supposed to be daytime. Like, we're going to switch at night because apparently the, with the way the pressure worked, the storms would all blow out at night and then day it would rain. So we're like, are you kidding me? There goes all our daytime stuff. So guess what? I guess we're shooting night in Morocco. Okay, fair enough. We had one day to shoot the daytime stuff and it was all good until we went to the Sahara. When we get to the Sahara, then it was just uh, sandstorms and camel problems. Uh, John Wick is definitely the theater of pain. I don't but know if Morocco it was worse is amazing. It's a fantastic location. It's difficult, yeah, it's, you know. It's great. Well, tell us a bit about shooting though in the, the desert. First time we scouted it, maybe in January, it was freezing cold, but Dan and I both, we got off the plane, we took the, the van out, we got in the dune buggies, we went out to the Sahara, and we both just, yeah, we're going to shoot here. Falling in love. So yeah, we're just... It was beautiful. Dan, I think Dan took one picture on his Leica, looked at it, went, yeah, we're shooting here. No matter what, how hard it is, no matter how messed up this is going to be, no matter what it's going to take, and then you got the producer behind you, ah, you know, logistically, how are you going to get people out here? We're in the middle of the Sahara. You're going to get, you know, dogs out here. We got to drive cars. We're like, hey, yeah, 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 but look at the picture. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. Look at that sunset. It was pretty nice. It was beautiful. I mean, you can't fake that. So we just kind of went with it and go, okay, well, how do we reverse engineer out again? We'll take the problems for the look. And, and so we find a location that was like approximately eight, 900 feet into the desert from the edge of the desert. So we have to run like a lot of power. Like it took them two weeks, I think, to run cables in there because in the beginning they said there's over a thousand feet of cable. We just could to just get into the first first hump, and then another couple thousand feet to get to the. Of tent. course, in the beginning everybody said, "No, we can just drive a generator in there," and we realized, you know, yeah, after well. like it's never <laughs> going to happen. So we we was putting like approximately a thousand feet of cable in. And so you're not talking about small cables, like a big high, high power cables. And then Kevin built this amazing place the big tent inside in that part of the desert and it was amazing and then we start to shoot and we got a sandstorm. Day one shooting the tent. Brilliant day. Calm, cool, crisp, couldn't be better. About 11 a.m. a little bit of a breeze you saw the chimes start moving 
and literally 90 seconds later, the tent's falling over. They're like, okay, pack it up. And all and the lights. You couldn't of- see five. Like I've never been in an actual sandstorm before. You couldn't see a foot in front of your face. Like it, wow. it became a little hazardous. So we obviously got everybody out there as quickly and safely as possible, and yeah. went and drank a lot of tea for the next 24 hours. You know, Dan and I would always joke. It's like, okay, well, we love the movie Casablanca, and you read about what happened on all those things and how they did it in Burbank. You know what I mean? Like, all right, I, I see why. And then you're like, but that's okay. We're gonna do Lawrence of Arabia. We want to get at least one shot like that. And then you really go through and you realize what they must have gone through one shot a day <laughs> to get it done. But that, Dan and I are both fans of films from the 60s and 70s and people that went out and really did it. The early Bonds, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, obviously, you know, some of the big war movies, Battle of the Bulge, that kind of thing. And you see a way, if you're going to create a world, you can choose it to do digitally, you know, if you're, if you're going to do sci-fi or you're going to do something like that. But from The Revenant on down, if you want to immerse somebody in a, a reality-based universe kind of thing, like we wanted to do on Wick, your locations kind of define you a little bit, define the world, define the, the methodology you're going to use to shoot the film. So to write a script and then try to squeeze a city into that script, I think, is a fault. We wanted to develop the world as we do, find these great locations. We kind of know the plot, the storylines, we know what we want to do. And then find those great things. And there wasn't a single location that didn't change something in the script. And I think that's important to note if you're going to do something like this, because the real world, it, it doesn't bend as easily as pen and paper. You, you know, like you will always deal with deserts. You will deal with rain. You will deal with the unpredictability of reality. Even when you're creating your own reality, you just, you need to, you know, not control the world, but adapt to it. You need to bend it and make it work. And that's the... I think I've worked on shows that were completely done on a, on a, on a sound stage, completely done like that. And that's great. You can control, the lights can be placed, you can pre-light all you want. You know, and I'm not going to lie to you, a lot of times, more often than not, that I'll, I'll care to admit, I'm shitting my pants when I walk on set. Like, I really, even on some of the days I'll walk in, I haven't got it all figured out. I'm shooting from the hip, you know. But when you have Kevin Cavanaugh, you have Dan Lauston, you have, like, I think one of the best stunt teams on the planet, you know, and I've got my AD and everybody's very, very good at all this stuff. They're all very creative men. So you don't have to get locked into this, well, God, the power went out. What should we do? You know, like on a soundstage, well, we've got all this plan. When you're living and it's organic, I think that's part of the appeal of some of the John Wick stuff is, look, it's a group of creative people. Like, and we're figuring out as we go. That's what keeps it alive and fresh. Like, you know, if I showed you the original script from what Morocco was to what we shot and how we got it, and you go, well, why did you change it? This was good too. And you're like, well, this is even better. I mean, how did you get here? It was it it's not a creative geniusness on my part of rewriting the script. It's like, there's a fucking sandstorm. <laughs> you couldn't shoot that scene. Or it rained for three weeks. Like, that tunnel sequence when he gets to Morocco, that was never supposed to happen. It was supposed to be a scene, and opening a scene with Sophia. They're going out through the... That went out. <laughs> because the tunnels were flooded, and we lost time. We couldn't get the gear out. So, like, what do you do? Sit and cry, or do you... You know, have that power, okay? And you just got to make the call. This isn't going to work. What can we do? Okay, we can do this. How fast can you let Dan's like, I have it up in two hours. Okay, we'll get the tunnels. Okay, can we get the permit? We get the permit. Kevin, how fast can you drive? A couple bags of sand, some paint. Okay, boom, we're in. And, you, you know, that's the benefit of having such an eclectically creative crew <laughs> is, you know, if you're going to shoot on location and you don't have those th- that kind of team, that's not going to go well. You know, especially if you're trying to do with animals and cities and night and rain and, and rain, unpredictability. Yeah. And we have this opinion about, you know, the look should be very powerful and very colorful. And I think we try to 
go after that, you know, single source lighting and strong colors and make the axis look so powerful and and beautiful as possible. And I think we try to do that all the way through. I mean, and, uh, that's always been, I mean, that's how, that's why I wanted to get someone like Mr. Lauston here. To do action is great. I mean, how many action movies have you seen where it's that saturated, cold, blue, gritty look? Because you want to really, action has to be gritty and tough. And at the time, Dave Leach and I, my partner, why don't we spin that? Like, why can't, you know, I'm a Nietzsche guy. Like, I think the purpose of life is art. So why can't you make action pretty? I mean, The Matrix certainly did. I mean, Crouching Tiger, Grand Masters, and the Asian Great cinema. example. Um, you know, no one in Asia looked down on Grandmaster. And that had extreme kung fu, to say at least, almost fantasy kung fu in it, with one of their top cinematographers. The cinematography was over the time. I mean, it was beautiful. It was actually stunning. And... I don't see why, just because somebody is literally shooting people heads off with shotguns, why that can't be beautiful as well. Why can't we combine great cinematography, great production design, you know, really clean editing to what is, you know, I, I'll be the first to admit, ridiculous levels of action. That was always our point. So if we can't make it beautiful, that's not the point of what we're doing. We're trying to make beautiful action. We're trying to make pretty pictures at the end of it. We, we want yeah, people to go... And tell a story. Yeah, we want to tell a story and we want to make it beautiful. We're trying to do a little piece of art. It's, you know, something we want to do. It's just, if Dan and I went, we're going to do a dramatic psychological journey of a character as he wanders through life in these beautiful set pieces, I don't know if that's a great pitch either because I don't know if I'll get more than 10 people in a noir environment and get a substantial amount of money to do it. So... Yeah, we we kind of mask our artistic endeavors in the action genre. But again, you, you see the way people respond to the Wick franchises. Like, look, this is cool. It's great, great action. And there's a big part of people or our audience that goes, yeah, and we love the way it's shot. We love the beauty. Of the and they're actually asking more questions about... You know, we get the, just like you've done, we, they've asked a question, well, how do you choreograph it? And how is this like, okay, you can kind of get your head around that. What's surprising to me in this last two weeks of interviews and, and all this stuff is the amount of questions. And I say it's 50-50 between the action design, the complications involved, or, you know, how cool is Keanu Reeves and what's it like to work with Halle Berry, which is, by the way, awesome. But it's a lot of technical questions, more so than I've ever gotten before about, how Dan did certain things, or where did Kevin, or where did this idea gestate from, or how did we do the glass house? They're very technical. And for people like Dan and I and Kevin, you know, we're very proud of what we've done. We're, we're very good that people notice that. We like how people pick up on not just the creative thematics, but the technical side of what we tried to do. You know, I've had director friends literally call me after the first trailer goes, like, okay, really? How did you, like, that's not a real horse, right? I'm like, no, no, that's a real horse. It's like, you know, the, the East Coast guy's like, that's not the Verrazano Bridge. You didn't shut down the Verrazano. No, we, and we put, shut down. And put the, tubes on lighting. Yeah, we put lighting tubes put on it for half every, the length of the, the longest suspension bridge in the United every States. Single I'm like, yeah, actually, it wasn't that hard, man. We just got the permit. We paid a little money. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of creative people doing cool. When people want to put forth the effort and they're passionate about it, you can ask Dan this directly. But I think, because I still question myself why people want to work with me in a John Wick movie. But just like I have, you know, I have a, a pretty eclectic and incredibly amazing cast from Angelica Houston to Ian McShane to Lawrence Fishburne, Willem Dafoe, Michael Nyquist. I mean, the list goes on to this great cast I, I've gotten over the years. And Keanu Reeves. And of course, yes, that, that guy, Keanu yeah. Reeves. And with Halle Berry, it's just, and I'd like to think that Dan and, and Kevin and, you know, Luca Mosca and, you know, Tyler Bates, my composer, and Mark Steckinger, my sound designer, all 
fairly, they're much larger in the industry than I am, uh, much more established, and I, and I would have to say much more talented than I am. But you'd like to think that by giving an environment that's collaborative and let them expand in, in, the, in the physical realm of things and not just phone it out. Again, none of us have a problem with the digital world or the digital techniques. It's just to actually give it a go. That's what I think is appealing to like the WIC franchise. Now, Hallie was new to the franchise this time, and I know at CinemaCon she was quoted as saying that it was the hardest thing she ever did working on this movie. So would you talk a bit about how you prepared the actors? Like how we started this whole thing was like, look, we treat it like dance. To everybody out there, it's like there's no magic button. There's no trick we have. Actors are humans. Like anybody listening to this, you can't just jump into eight hours a day. I, at my high point as a professional athlete, I couldn't train for eight hours a day. That's ludicrous. When you hear people say that, that's so. What do you do? Five push-ups and sit around for an hour and read a book? Like, how, I don't know anybody working out for eight hours a day. And I know some of the best in the business. You have to get in shape to get in shape. I just, you know, it's it's a stretch. It's acclimation. It's starting to learn. It's testing your memory. It's doing this, and you have to learn a new skill set. You know, it takes time and massive amounts of commitment. Hallie was literally. It's an eight-hour day. But, you know, you're driving to three different gyms across L.A. You have to eat three, four times to get the energy up. You have to go see dogs at night. It starts with, you know, basically dance drills. It starts with memory drills and learning choreography and not just hitting things. That's one of the last things we'd ever do. It's working with the stuntmen that you're going to work with and the cast members. It's learning the martial arts. It's training your body. It's physical conditioning. It's flexibility. It's firearm trainings. You know, two hours every day way up in Simi Valley with Taryn Butler, one of the best three-gun champions in the world training are there and then you got to come back down and work with the stunt guys because we don't shoot real bullets so you have to learn how to do you know movie gun fighting and then it's you know she ended every day in downtown LA two hours a day getting acclimated to the five Belgian Malawans that were the dogs in the movie I mean it sounds like fun for the first week and then you realize for six months that this is your life you don't get a private life you don't get to go out and drink you don't get to stay out late because the penalty of that is the next day of you know you're going to suffer you know, and you get tweaked and you get bruised and you get beat up because you're falling down and you're learning judo and like, you know, you got to do it with holsters on your hips that's bruising you. And then, you know, the dogs are drooling on you every day and you're on a diet that's supposed to be high energy, but you're not eating a lot of sugar. You're not drinking your Pepsi. You know, you're not doing, uh, you know, you're not having pizza. You just got to stay on this diet. And it makes a lot of really calm people irritable. <laughs> you do realize that I'm management now, right? I'm not service anymore, John, so I don't go around shooting people in the head. I'm not asking you to kill anyone. I just need you to get me to him. To who? Your old boss. You want to kill Barada? I'm not going to kill him. I just need to talk. What could he possibly give to you? Guidance. Look, I made a deal when I agreed to run this hotel. And that deal said that I had to follow the rules of the table. If you're not gonna kill him, he is gonna kill you. And then probably me too for walking you up in there. You know, and on top of that, Hallie is going to another phase of her career right now where she, you know, she's gonna be directing soon. So I think that's, at least in my mind, made her so, like every spare minute she'd be talking to Dan, she'd be talking to me, she felt like she had an interest in filmmaking. So I, I can only assume that helped her persevere through what was basically six months of, of, of hell for her, you know? Because, again, having come from 30 years of stunt work and action, okay, let's get this straight right now. No one does their own stunts. That's why it's called a stunt. If it wasn't a stunt, the guy wouldn't be doing it, okay? So you can't... Now, 
what defines a stunt is the person's capabilities. Does his limitations exceed his capabilities? Does his capabilities exceed his limitations? Tom Cruise, you know, Stallone, Keanu, their capabilities exceed some of their limitations, meaning at this point they can't ride a horse. We believe that because of their physical attributes and aptitude and who they are, within six weeks we can get them to that point. Now that long, no longer becomes a stunt. If I took you right now and threw you on a horse and you have to jump off, that's a stunt. You're coming off the horse and your stunt double's doing it. But if I know that because of wire work and because of the way we rig, that I can get you to be a professional horse rider in 12 weeks, that's just action now. That's no longer a stunt. The risk factor's gone down based on your sure. skills. Okay, we call it a stunt. A stunt, by definition, is you can't do it. It exceeds your, your capabilities and is now, there is a probability of of injury or, or or hazard to it, and that's why a stunt person does it. Or it's just beyond your skill set. To any one of us, doing the splits in a backflip isn't dangerous at all, but it just exceeds a normal person's uh, capabilities or skill set. So when you have somebody like Keanu or Halley that do that, rather than make the choreography this insane matrix-level choreography where we know the stunt doubles are going to do stuff, we train them to the maximum point and we'll choreograph to their capabilities. So that's why you don't see big spin kicks or splits or backflips. You'll see Aikido and Jiu-Jitsu and all the things that these guys can actually do. And that's kind of the definition between action and stunts. I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, with what you did and then the production design and the cinematography, the sound, the score, the editing, you know, the way it all comes together, when do you bring on your, you know, start talking about sound? When do you start talking to your editor? Honestly, first movie, I was clueless and just was guided and pushed by my producers through post. Because even as 10 years as a second unit and action director on some, some of the biggest 10 polos of the time, we never had to deal with post. I'd go in for editorial and I'd cut the fight scene, then I'd blow out of there and onto the next gig, you know? Second movie, okay, I got a taste of, I know who's important, I, I get how to do this. So I was very careful about how I chose my post group for my post supervisor, and that I started much sooner on, on, on chapter two. Like, before we even started shooting, I. I had already hired my post team and scheduled the backwards. Learned a lot of mistakes from not being as decisive as I could have been on that show. So on this one, oh yeah. I was having conversations with Mark Steckinger. I want to change the sound of the guns. I know what I want to do with the motorcycles. I want environmental sound. I want a layer. I want a lot less competing music. You do like, which is a lot of bass music, and you hear gunshots and they go, so we discovered on number two, every time the car would rev or someone would shoot, it was exactly the same key as Tyler Bates' bass lines. So we literally had to go through all the music and strip out the bass. And I was like, okay, that's not going to happen this time. We're going to use high end. We're going to use strings. We're going to use everything high octave. We're going to not compete with any of the, the more masculine motorcycle, boom, 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 and all the gunshots and shotguns. So we redesigned all the guns to be a little lower. Mark put in, we designed all the music to be higher. That's why you hear Hayden and you hear Vivaldi and you hear all, and I love strings, so we had a lot of string stuff so it didn't compete. And everything's more atmospheric. I tried to layer it all. So that was a big talk. I'm a huge fan of Ennio Maricone, like the Sergio Leone stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously I can't get the rights and I can't get Ennio. So I talked to Tyler, I was like, well, how do we do this? Like, and he came up with a, you know, I'm a huge Peter Frampton, Frampton Comes Alive. So I, I was in his studio one day and I saw him have one of those talk box things, the tube, and he's talking to him. Like, and he started messing with it because he was working on the new Bush album with Gavin Razzo, who I actually got a song from. And he starts talking into the talk box and I'm like, that's it, go wah, wah, wah. And we'll start like, you know, because you can't do the whistle from Good, the Bad, the Ugly. 
So he starts doing that. We just designed this whole theme of Western showdown kind of stuff with that. But that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't started way, way before you could have needed it. It's funny, when you get put in time frames, like, I, again, I don't know if you listen to so music and sound are two of the last things that come in. And when you get into posts, movies wrapped, and you're going, you're doing the edit, you do the director's cut, you do the final, you do assemblies, you do all the stuff, then you start testing with the studio. Sound is doing these eensy beensy little temp passes. But when it's really time to do sound and mix and sound effects and dialogue, those guys get maybe four or five. It's, it's, it's incredible. The most stressed guy in any post thing on any show is the sound guy. He's always the last dude. Like, that's the guy you're waiting for before you lock everything. Once you lock picture, the music's got to get passed in. But the last guy's the, the night before you have to turn in that reel or that, the whole film, the sound guys are up till 2 in the morning going, we got to mix because it's the final mix to picture because every time you change one frame in an edit visually that the ripple effect through sound is massive so like those are the guys that are getting screwed the most so we try to prepare all that much much sooner you know i was having discussions with with tyler and mark months before we even started shooting so they could get their head around it because people can't when you're under time restraint even us on set my whole lecture about prep beforehand and spending so much money and time in prep is if you're on set and no one's seen the fight before, you're not trying to do a good job. You're not trying to create better shots. You're just trying to get it done. Yeah. When you're trying to get it done, you can't be creative. When you've already lost three hours because you know Dan's got to put up lights because I didn't tell him where I wanted to shoot or I hadn't rehearsed the camera move I had. I go, oh, let's just see what happens. I've lost half a day. Half a day to us, that's a dozen setups. And like Dan said, so let's see, I got one shot. Keanu got all warmed up. My 10 stunt guys went down. Now to do the reverse, it's three hours later. You know what kind of performance you're gonna get out of that? If I had you sprint for a mile and then cool down and then sprint again, you know how tore up your body would be? Like you'd get a shit performance. So everything's based on performance. It's the same thing with your department heads. How did the two of you meet and what makes this such a great working relationship? Uh, honestly, it was, uh, I, I was in New York. I had a list of cinematographers. I don't think any of them <laughs> Dan, at the time, uh, Dan's name has been taken off the list because I think you guys were doing Pacific Rim 2. That was a plan. That was like he was already like officially booked on a Guillermo del Toro thing. And I, I, I literally was screwed. I saw the, the trailer for, and that's what, st the whole thing, Dan's name, I loved the movie Brotherhood of the Wolf 20-something years ago. Mark DeCasco. Yeah, Mark DeCasco, funny. I loved it. Love the Crimson Peaks. Uh, saw the trailer for Crimson Peaks. Saw again that one shot. I was like, oh, that's, that's, that was the look. And I actually had a photo of that up on the wall. Like, this is what I'd like it to look like. <laughs> Weeks go by in prep. You know, the producers are throwing me everybody out there, resumes. And it just, no one had done anything on the resume that was in the realm of what John Sella, our, the cinematographer on the first John Wick, uh, was doing. And John was currently with Dave Leach, my partner over on Atomic Blonde. So he was already booked doing that. So he's unavailable. And God, it, I, trying to find an editor and trying to find a cinematographer were driving me nuts. I couldn't find anything, and because you know, your cinematographer—that's that's your that's your soulmate for the production. Like that is the, that's the that's the key spot. That's the pole position. Yeah. No, and then um, you called me, and you know, I flew to New York, and we have it. Yeah. Well, talk it was, it was about... Erica that had gotten a message from like one of Guillermo's assistants. Guillermo, God bless him, for whatever reason, knew that we we're looking. The feelers had gone out with the agents said, hey, you know, unfortunately this project has gone down. My cinematographer, Dan Lawson, is available. Do you know anybody, you know, is oh, it? Oh, okay. And that's kind of, I found out you're available through through them. And I just laughed and go, there's no way he's going to work with us. <laughs> and I was convinced, like, you should at least call him. Let him turn, let him turn you down in person. <laughs> 
So I called him up and we just had, I don't know, it was like a quick chat, really. No, I flew to New York. Plane. Yeah, yeah, I flew to New York. How'd you like to fly to New York? I think Dan just wanted the trip to New York. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to New York just some days off. And that's just... when you watched the movie. Huh? And then I watched the movie and, you know, Chad said, you know, I want to do this Bertolucci movie. Uh, yeah, I was nervous. Action. I tried to put all these Bertoluccis in all these No, movies. that wasn't. Tarkovsky references. And you showed me the... The moon board, you know, have done it was amazing, you know, very well prepared. Um, and we just said, now we're here. Shot number three. Very proud of it. Honestly, it's a lot of the same taste and both want to create something a little different. Dan thinks visually very different and he knows, he knows I like depth, he knows I like color, he knows I like the composition I do. He's very good at figuring out how to get that with the composition. You're about to start uh, pre-pro on Guillermo's next movie. Yeah, that's the plan. I'm Nightmare going Island. to shoot Guillermo del Toro's next movie in Toronto for the next couple of months. It's going to be exciting, and then hopefully Chad knows what to do, and then we're going to do that. Yeah. I'm not in bad company if I have to share my cinematographer with Guillermo del Toro, who I'm a huge fan of. So. You mentioned that there were some things that you had to change on the script because of you know logistics or for whatever reason during production. Is there anything that you had to abandon that you have in your head if you did a fourth one you'd like to incorporate? Oh, uh, ideas for day. I mean, uh, that's the kind of the cool thing about this. People ask, well, why did you do number two, number three? Like, look, it had nothing to do trying to make a trilogy. I just like the one. Uh, honestly, of all the scripts I read, and I, I think Dan and Kevin and my stunts, like, you read a lot of stuff and, and, and it's in a box. Like, you have to adhere to what the story is. Like, you can't just go off and do crazy kung fu wire work in a World War II drama. It, uh, it just doesn't fit tonally. When you're doing with the Wick thing where like Keanu the main architects of it you know we're gonna do neon noir in Chinatown and put up LEDs and tubes on the front like on the front of the New York Public Library like we just smile and go yeah because we can make our own world so that's the appeal like we can do anything but that's fantastic because we're doing our own world yeah that's that's the thing and everybody at this point I'm no longer the singular author Keanu and I are no longer the dual authors of it. Like our department has, like, Dan's changed the look of it. I mean, literally, with his ideas, has changed the look of the movie from number one to number three now. Kevin has changed the look of the movie. Luca Mosca has changed the look of the movie. Uh, my stunt team has helped change with their ideas. You know, there's a lot of authors on. Like, that's, I think, from any creative position standpoint, what you'd like to do. So to end up here and to kind of do that, yes. So, in answer to your question, I have a notebook this thick. I'm sure Dan's got, like, I have people that don't run out of ideas. I mean, I think if if we had had, what, two more weeks? Yeah. I think it would, it would be a whole other level. I mean, it's almost good they didn't give us more time. Cause no, it's not. Really no, we, we could have spent some more time. Yeah. But I think if we were to do number four, it it would be a collective. I mean, I'd, I'd rack my brain story-wise and character-wise, but I, I would definitely have that that sit down with my, you know, three or four big creative departments and go, what do you got left? What can you do? What's in your mind? And how do I bring this to fruition? If it's not New York City, what would be the best location? Is it Tokyo? Is it Rio de Janeiro? Is it Cape Town? Is it some place that gives us the opportunity to do something that we couldn't do before because I put the limitation of a location or a time frame or an action sequence on? Like, what's another way to bring out Kevin's best, Dan's best, my stunt team's best? And then we'd start weaving that into the story because... John Wick is a reversed-engineered creative property, so, you know, sky's the limit. I know I have tons of choreography ideas, I have tons of characterize, I know Keanu has his notebook of his thoughts, and I assume... Yeah. And if, if Dan doesn't have a notebook, I'm sure he'd have one by the end of the discussion. So. 
Yeah, now we just have to figure out what to shoot next time. Yeah. And what to shoot. And how to, what the new technologies bring and how to incorporate that into our world. I think that would be the challenge. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. 